Well, thanks for being here. It's great to see everyone. We're, we're glad that you're with us. And whether you're joining us in person or online, we're glad that you're here. Starting a new series today, We Are the Church. And the first thing that we're going to talk about is truth. We're actually structuring this. It goes along with our four Ds, right? Remember that? Discover. We help people. We exist as a church to help people discover truth, decide on Jesus, demonstrate change, and deploy for others. We got the symbols right up here backing me up. And so today, we're talking about truth. And truth is something we need to talk about today because, wow, it, truth hit hard times. Uh, I got to tell you, um, today, people see truth as subjective, not objective. Subjective meaning, hey, truth is whatever I say, truth is. Truth for me might be different than truth for you. My truth, your truth, fake news, alternative facts, politically motivated uh, science, false history. You know, an expert comes along and creates a narrative and nobody can question that because he's an expert. Well, then later we find out that that was wrong but, you know, there's, well, then the ex, that same expert says something else, and we go by that. It's just, it's interesting to see what's happening in our world about truth. And this is nothing new in 2020. We've been sliding this way for the last dec decade or so. We probably see it more now uh, with journalists in that it used to be what we were used to was that there would be a debate about something or some questionable thing, and a journalist or newscaster would come on and say, this guy says this, and this other guy says this, and it was sort of, you figure it out. But now it's, no, this guy says this, and this is right, and everybody else is wrong. It's, it's just, it's a different world that we are living in, and networks only report what they want people to see, and then they tell people how they should think about it. We, we now, there's a lot of stuff going around now about how social media is censored. So people are fleeing to other medias uh, because of that. Um, hey, and, and what's happening there? Well, if you express a view that the, the owner, the tech company doesn't agree with, you're censored or, or you're fact-checked. And some of those fact-checks aren't actually factual. But... If you, if you throw out the other side, well, that's not fact-checked, and on and on this goes. And, and of course, now we're in the middle of a, you know, finally figuring out the election. As what happened, we had a close election, and so now we're having a recount in some of those key states. That's always happened. We always do that in close elections. So we're letting that play out a little bit. Some people are getting antsy about that, but why do we do a recount? Because truth matters. Truth ma it matters who actually, you know, had the most votes that were correctly submitted. I mean, that, that matters. So, so we do that. That's just who we are as a country. Truth matters. And, and we as Christians, by the way, should be praying for that the truth would come out. No matter how the truth is, that truth would show up, that we would get to the bottom of truth. It's important for our country that that happens. This war on truth will affect Christians and churches more and more in the coming years. I'm just telling you, we, we've seen it in other countries. It's just going to happen. We need to buckle up for that and get ready. We see it. We're in other countries outside the West, 
We have Christians dying for the faith they believe to be true. Where Christians and churches here in the West are questioning whether there is even truth. I mean, it's, it's a huge difference. And basically, truth is absolute. Truth is objective. You can discover truth, and you can discover what's not true. And we've, just, we've got to embrace the fact as, as people, what we've always understood, that truth matters. And there are the truth in all parts of our lives, especially truth regarding us and God, that absolute truth exists. Truth matters. We can seek to discover it, or we can reject it, or we can just be indifferent about it. But we need to seek out truth even if it conflicts with our preconceived ideas, right? We need to be able to challenge ourselves with truth. It's not just out there, it's in here. We need to evaluate ourselves with truth. Now, I'm going to show you something. I didn't show this the first hour because I knew they would mock me, but I know you're kinder and nicer, so I have a little story. I'm going to share a picture. Didn't talk about this last hour, but I grew up, uh, and my dad was a, a master chief, and he was large and in charge, and you did what he said, and there was no question about it. I remember working with him in the garage, you know, practically daily, and if he says, hey, I need a crescent wrench, I would run to the toolbox, grab the crescent wrench, turn it over, hand it to him, ha you know, handle first wherever he was working. I, I just did that really quick as I was obedient, very obedient. And so I was just raised that way. So I had this preconceived notion of how I was as a kid, that I was one of the most obedient kids around. And so when I went to school and stuff, I knew I was one of the most obedient. This is how I'm looking back. I was one of the most obedient, structured kids. And then a few years ago, we uncovered a photo, a classroom photo. All right, didn't show this last, last hour because they'd make fun of me, but throw it up here. Is it all there? Okay, well... Can't quite see all of it, but if you notice, there's 30 kids here. All of them but one have both feet on the ground, one hand in their lap, one hand on the desk looking at the camera. But if you'll notice up toward the top, a little bit right of center, there's a guy in a black shirt. He's got his legs crossed. He's slouching. He doesn't have his hand. And I realize that's me. And I'm thinking, okay, out of 30 kids, I looked at each kid and I realized out of 30 kids, 29 kids are sitting the exact same way and one kid isn't and I'm the one. And so I'm all of a sudden, evidence starts messing with my reality of, oh, maybe I wasn't so obedient. Maybe I wasn't the most obedient kid. Maybe I was a rabble-rouser, and I don't know. Maybe I just didn't care. I don't know. But all of a sudden, that started messing with, oh, it's not the way I thought. We all have to be willing to let truth shed light on our own lives, right? And we do this in every single area of our life. But today, we have people who say that the truth can't be known or absolute truth doesn't exist. Well, I want to look at a story in Scripture, an event that happened 
2,000 years ago where truth was put on trial. Truth was put on trial and judged by people who were, in, who were indifferent to truth. And out of that came this question, and it was a question that Pilate asks in the trial of Jesus where he says, what is truth? And that question has reverberated in our world for the last 2,000 years. So I want to check this out. Now, as we look at John 18, which is our text today, during this, this is, we're following along Jesus' trial and his interaction with Pilate and the chief priests before him. But interjected in this story is John masterfully weaves in two scenes. One is Jesus and his trial, and then the other scene is one that we're really familiar with, and that is Peter, and what's happening with Peter is he sort of follows along the events that's happening with Jesus, and that leads to Peter's denial, and we've all heard about that, right? So two things are happening, but, and we, a lot of times in this text we talk about Peter's denial, but this time I'm not reading any of those, those texts, because that keeps showing up. I'm just focused on Jesus' trial. So are we ready? That was a little bit better than last time. Good. Starting in John 18, beginning with verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. This is a little bit confusing, but I'll break it down for you. Annas had been a high priest previously, and they actually held that a title for more than a year. But he had been a very popular high priest for several years, but then he was deposed, he was removed. But people still referred to him as a high priest. Now, during this year that this happens, he has a son-in-law named Caiaphas, and Caiaphas is the reigning high priest. So both of these guys are called high priests. It could be just a little bit confusing. I want to pick it up in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. So he's making this point. You know, why, I've not, all my teaching, it's been out there, it's been public. Verse 20, why do you question me? Question those who've heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When Jesus had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So you see what's happening here? They're questioning Jesus. Jesus tells them, and then one guy kind of roughs him up, and he's saying, hey, why are you striking me? I'm telling you the truth. And um, we're, I want to continue now to uh, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat of the Passover. So just another snapshot here. 
they leave, they go to Anna, Annas, then they go to Caiaphas, and now they're taking him to the Roman governor, Ty, um, Pilate. Pilate is in the praetorium. That's the praetorium guard, the, the elite Roman guard. He's staying there. He's normally in Caesarea but by the sea, but now he's there because it's Passover week to quell anything going on. But now when the Jewish people bring Jesus over, they don't want to go in to the praetorium because that is the home Pilate's making that his home where Romans live, and they're not Jewish, and that would make them undefiled according to their religious tradition, and that would make them uh, defiled so they would not be able to participate with the rest of Passover. And Passover started the night before with Jesus in the upper room and all that, but there's actually several days of feast that's part of the Passover, and going into this Roman home would defile them. The irony is, here they are, trying to kill an innocent man, a man that they know to be innocent. They're trying to get rid of him. But as they're trying, in the middle of their plot to get Jesus killed, they don't want to step in the house because they don't want to be religiously defiled. So just, uh, you know, just kind of ironic how that's all breaking out. Now, verse 29, we continue. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you, which is not really an answer, you know, but they just kind of throw that out. And then it continues, verse 31. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. And so what's happening here? They're trying to get Jesus killed. But they, and, and really, they could have killed Jesus, I mean, in, in their minds, because they actually did that to a man named Stephen that's recorded in the Bible just a few months later. And what happened? The Jewish people stoned Stephen, and then what Pilate do? He just kind of looked the other way and pretended it didn't happen. So they could have done that to Jesus, but there's a problem. Jesus, after three years of ministry, is a very popular teacher. He's just come in to Jerusalem. People were proclaiming him that he was king. And so they realized they're not going to be able to stone Jesus. People start throwing rocks. Those rocks may go two different directions. It's going to be a mess. So they can't, they can't kill Jesus that way. So then their problem is, plus, they don't want to be accountable to the crowd. So then they're thinking, okay, how do we get rid of Jesus? How do we get Jesus killed without us being blamed for Jesus's death? And this is how they do it. They decide we are going to manipulate Pilate. We're going to play him and we're going to force him to put Jesus to death. That's what's happening here. Verse 32. And then it continues to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was about to die. And so all this is playing into God's hand. But there's something else going on. Caiaphas, the high priest, knows that if he can get Rome to kill Jesus, not only would they not be blamed, but this will also mar Jesus' reputation. Because Caiaphas know, and the Jewish people know, that Deuteronomy 21 says that if anybody dies hanging on a tree, that they are cursed by God. And so they know... Caiaphas knows if we can get the Romans, if the Romans kill him, Romans won't stone him. The Romans will crucify him. What's crucifixion? Where they hang you up on a beam, on a wooden post, on a wooden log, and let you sort of 
bleed out and suffocate, you know, a long agonizing death. But then if Jesus dies that way, they'll be able to say, look, just like we told you, Jesus, he, he's cursed by God. He died on a tree, hanging on a tree. That's how he died. And the Bible even says that God, he's cursed of God if you die on a tree. So this not only is a way to kill Jesus without taking the blame, but it's also a way to discredit Jesus after Jesus is dead. But here's the problem. God's plan was for Jesus to experience the full wrath of God for sin. And so Jesus' enemies like Caiaphas, who are trying and plotting to destroy Jesus, were actually just doing exactly what God knew was going to happen. They were just sort of playing out the story, even though it was unintentionally. They're, they're a part of God's plan. Now, Pilate is in kind of a sketchy spot here. We know that from history outside Scripture. Pilate has been governor in this area for about seven years. But during the seven years, he's made some bad decisions. Those bad decisions, he just handled some things wrongly, caused some problems with the Jewish people, and that's gotten back to Rome. So now he knows that Tiberius knows that he hasn't done so well. But it gets worse. The guy who recommended to the emperor that they put Pilate as the governor is named Sejanus. Sejanus was the captain of the Praetorian Guard in Rome. Problem though, two years prior to this event, Sejanus falls out of favor with Caesar and ends up being executed. So now here's Pilate on a remote station. He's the governor, but he knows that the emperor knows he's made some bad decisions. And then the one a guy that he had on, in his corner that was there in Rome, Sejanus, Sejanus has been executed by the emperor. So Pilate knows he is on super thin ice and he does not want to rock the boat. He's in a political bind. And so the question just becomes, it's funny because people say no politics in the Bible. Politics are all over the Bible. He's in a political bind. And the question is simply this, will Pilate seek out truth? Will he act on truth or not? Does truth matter to Pilate? And, and just like it is for us, it's the same question we can apply to us. Does truth matter? Do we care? Do we conform our lives to what is true or do we just keep doing make-believe and just, just play it out however we want? So truth matters. We can either... We can either seek out truth to discover it, or we can just be indifferent, not give a rip about truth. And of course, we should seek truth. Pilate here has the opportunity to seek out the truth, and he, he sort of starts doing that. Look at verse 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? So Pilate questions Jesus, are you king of the Jews? And this is very interesting because Jesus says, are you asking for yourself 
Or are you asking because of this charge that's made by the Jewish people? Is this for you or is this because of this political issue that's playing out? Because here, what, what is happening here is Jesus, even on the cusp of him being crucified, he sort of reaches out in a personal way to Pilate and challenges Pilate a little bit. Are you asking for you? Do you really want to know the answer to this in your own heart? And he's really saying to Pilate, hey, you need to make a decision. I know you're the governor and you're going to make a decision, but you need to make a decision personally about what's going on here. But Pilate's exasperated. Verse 35, Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So Jesus here is denying political ambitions, but he does not deny being a king because that wouldn't be true. Continues verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, if Pilate would have just stopped here and really absorbed this and thought a lot deeper, he would have realized he's not the only one on trial here. Jesus is sort of putting him on trial about truth. It continues in verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And with a flippant remark, he dismisses truth, but it's still nagging at him. Look at the next, the continuation of verse 38. And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate understands Jesus is no political threat to Rome. So he's interacting that way. Now, what about truth? Our church exists to help people discover truth. That's what we do. The gospel, the good news, is just that. It's news that we hear and then we have to react to. We have to either believe it or disbelieve it or investigate it or check it out or whatever, but it's news that we've got to respond to. And that really has been woven into our entire country. Countries founded on Christian principles place a high value on truth and open debate. They don't shut people down or not allow them to speak because they say something that you think is wrong. Christian country, countries founded on Christian principles, that means countries who started with primarily Christians, they have a high value on truth and they also have a high value on let's debate it. Why am I pointing that out? Because, Christ, because nations who are not founded on those types of Christian principles do not have that value. For example, in Muslim-dominated nations, 
You can't go to the city square and sort of debate whether Muhammad was a true prophet or not. You can't do it. You can't go debate on whether Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They will shut you down. They'll throw you in jail if you survive the angry mob that might be reacting to you. And it's not just religion, by the way. Atheist countries shut that down as well. Atheist countries have a history of not allowing people in the open square to honestly discuss questions about God or specifically, is Jesus the Son of God? They shut that down. It's only in Christian countries, countries where there, there's a predominant Christian view that allows all views to be expressed. And so make your case, talk about Muhammad, talk about atheism, that's okay, bring it and let's discuss it and let the best view win. That's only countries like ours, or at least that's the way our country has been. And both of those, whether it's atheistic or other religions like Hindu or Muslim, they all persecute Christians. Christian countries don't persecute. Bible-teaching churches are the guardians of the most important truth in the world, and that is God's Word. That's, we're the guardians of that. We don't suppress truth. We make our case. We argue it out. We attempt to discover truth. But unfortunately, the other option is we can be indifferent to truth. I mean, let's face it, a lot of people, they just don't want to put the work into it. They, they don't want to put the effort into discovering truth, especially if once they discover that truth, it will, might make them feel less comfortable or that they'll have to change something. They don't want to change. And so they don't want to be bothered with that, and they become indifferent. That's exactly what's happening playing out in Pilate's life in the text that we're looking at. Pilate knows... He's being manipulated. He knows the Jewish leaders are just using him to kill this popular guy named Jesus with no real political aspirations. So he thinks he comes up with a way out. We remember this, right? He realizes that he has a tradition of releasing somebody during the Passover, releasing a political prisoner. And so he comes to the crowds and he thinks he saw how popular Jesus was just a few days ago on the triumphal entry. So he's like, this is a no-brainer. I'm going to give them the choice. Hey, we have a tradition to release a prisoner during Passover. Here's your choice. Jesus, the man who taught the highest moral teaching in the world, or Barabbas, who's a thief, and we learn from other texts that he was actually a terrorist. He's a zealot. He's against Rome. He's murder, plotting, and everything else. Jesus, Barabbas, easy choice. But the leaders manipulate the crowds, right? Verse 39, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release to you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Now, the scourging here, there's two different 
things that happen. There's actually three levels that the Romans used to scourge people. This is probably the lowest level. This is where Jesus is just beaten. He's roughed up. He's mocked. They throw a cloak on him. They jam a crown of thorns on his head, but he's not getting the cat of nine tails. He's not getting the whipping that, that he'll get later that will just rip flesh off of his body. So they, they rough Jesus up. They they, and I think Pilate's doing this just so then Jesus will elicit some sympathy from the crowd. But, but it's, a pic, it's a picture of the gospel. Here Barabbas is the criminal, and he goes free, and Jesus, the innocent, pays the price. It's a picture of us. Verse 4 continues. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. He's in court. Now, normally when somebody's in court and an accusation is made, if the defendant remains silent, if nobody says anything on his behalf, it's sort of like a, an admission of guilt. A lot of people would view that it's an admission of guilt. You're, you're not saying you didn't do this. You're not saying anything. It's kind of what's happening. Jesus, who's never done anything wrong, he's silent. And he's silent not because... He's guilty. He's silent because he's consenting to your guilt and my guilt. He's silent because he's willingly accepting our guilt on him that will be punished at the cross, which is God's plan. But why else didn't, didn't Jesus answer? Here you got Pilate. He's kind of exasperated. He's already kind of said he didn't really care about truth. And he's saying, where are you from? You know, Jesus had been asked these kinds of questions before. Think about it. Back in John 3, remember? Famous meeting. Jesus meets with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a super smart religious leader in Israel. He comes and meets Jesus at night, and he's basically getting from, you know, where are you from? What's going on? And Nicodemus couldn't really understand who Jesus was and what he was doing and where he came from. If Nicodemus, a religious leader, couldn't fully comprehend where Jesus was from, how do you think Pilate, a Roman governor, who's already said he doesn't give a rip about the truth, how do you think he's going to understand it? There's no way. And of course, Jesus knows that. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, You have no authority over me unless I have been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And what, what's, what's he saying there? He's saying, 
Jesus is reminding Pilate, you know what? You would have no authority of me if God didn't allow that to work out. Here's an example where God is letting something bad happen for greater good. God is allowing in, in human free will bad things to play out, but God is so much higher that he can use that for a positive in our life. Verse 12 continues. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So then he handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. But Pilate wasn't actually hostile to Jesus. Pilate wasn't an enemy of Jesus. Pilate saw no threat in Jesus. And Jesus even told Pilate, hey, the, one, the ones who handed me over to you, they have the greater guilt. But when Jesus is saying that, Pilate should be able to figure out that he's saying that Jesus is telling him, you're just indifferent, but you're guilty too. They have the greater guilt, but you're still guilty. I mean, we see all through the story three different times, Pilate's saying, Jesus is innocent. Three, three different times, Pilate's flirting with the truth, and he's curious about the truth. He's, he pursued the truth a little bit, even though he wasn't so clear on what truth was. But when it came down to him paying a political price to uphold truth, he wouldn't do it. He bailed. He was apathetic to truth. Pilate wasn't courageous enough not only to discover truth, but then to act on it. He, he didn't do it. He doesn't want to make an unpopular decision. He worried about what other people would think. He becomes indifferent. And we see that happening all, all around us. Today, churches are apathetic to the truth. You know, they're usually dying churches because of that. Churches who claim they stand on the Word of God have become apathetic to truth. It's like what the culture says overrides what the Bible says. What the Bible calls sin, if it's not popular today to call that sin, then, then churches say, well, the Bible's just out of date on that. But now we know better. Churches are denying God's truth. And I always wonder, how can that be? 
Because if you deny the Bible, then you have nothing to talk about at church. I mean, that's the whole point. We live according to the truths of Scripture, and we do that in community. If Scripture's not true, if we can just pick and choose all through the Bible what truths we want to believe, what truths we don't want to believe, what truths are popular and work, and what truths aren't popular, so we're just going to not talk about those or say that they're wrong in Scripture, well, then all of a sudden, who gets to decide? No wonder those churches are shrinking because everybody can figure that out. Well, yeah, you're talking about this, but you're not talking about that. Why, why are you saying this truth in the Bible is true and that truth in the Bible is not true? One statement's true. One's, how can you say that? Then how can we trust you to pick the right ones? It doesn't make any sense. And then if you no longer have that basis well, then what are we getting together to talk about? If there is no absolute truth, then it doesn't matter. Just like Paul says, hey, if the resurrection didn't actually happen, then we should be as more pitied than anybody. Truth is what we should seek. Some churches have left truth for political reasons. Some churches because of cultural reasons, they no longer proclaim truth. Other churches fear what people might think, that they'll be out of touch, that they won't be politically correct or whatever. That, that it's out of date, that they'll be attacked, and they abandon truth. We are the church of the living God. God has entrusted with us the most important truth in the world. His word. His news to us. If we don't have His word, we have nothing. I get so frustrated. Sometimes I'll talk to people and I'll find out, you know, it usually has nothing to do with our church, but they'll be somewhere else and, and they're going to a church and I'm thinking, well, that well, that church, or they'll move away from here and they'll start attending a church. I'm like, well, what are you doing? Why that church? Well, God, this is a church I want to go to. Or you talk to people and, and they seem to have a good understanding of truth, but they go to a church that doesn't preach truth. And you're saying, why are you there? Why do you keep going to this church? You know it doesn't preach truth. It doesn't teach the truth. And, and they'll say, well, we've, you know, it's just the history of my family. You know, or the classic, well, my grandparents are buried in the graveyard next door to the church. Well, your grandparents would leave if they could. It, you're, the church isn't preaching truth anymore. And if we're in a church like that, we should leave too. Here at Grace, we stand on truth. Truth that doesn't change. Well, Kevin... Grace has changed. Yeah, we've changed stylistically. And we will always change stylistically. But the truth that we preach has not changed in the 80 years our church has been a church. And it shouldn't ever change. 
Because truth doesn't change. The Word of God doesn't change. It's all the same. You should commit to truth. First of all, in our own lives, we must commit to truth. That's not exactly what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about we as a nation must commit to truth. To at least figuring it out, discovering truth, arguing truth, debating truth. That's what we should be about. And more importantly, we as a church must be about truth. Because it's the truth of God's word that we, the church, are guardians. Not church as in structure, church as in people. The truth of God's word. God has handed his word down to us for this generation that we would be the guardians and the proclaimers and the teachers of truth. And the day we stop teaching the whole truth from the Bible here at Grace is the day you should leave. We stand on truth. And all of us here, we want us all to stand together because truth is absolute. Truth doesn't change. Truth can be argued, debated. And that's what we're all about. God's truth. Let's stand together. Father God in heaven, we, we thank you. Lord, we thank you not just for loving us, that you've revealed yourself and you've revealed yourself in a book that you've handed down to us, that you've given us, a book that we can prove has not changed. God, give us the courage to be people of truth as it applies to our own life, as it applies, applies to our communities, but especially as it applies to our church. Give us a strength, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.
singing with you. You guys are dismissed. See you next week.